interesting idea. I know, I know uni students are very much motivated by um, fear of punishment. If you don't hand in your paper, you drop a mark every single day that you don't. So that's not a very good punishment to have. Anyway, um, it, um, my name's Abby, um, and it's my pleasure to bring the Bible reading today. Um, today's Bible reading comes from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Um, and if you don't have a paper Bible and you would like a paper Bible, then please raise your hand um, and people will get to you. Before we begin, let me pray. Uh, dear gracious Lord, thank you so much for your word and thank you for how you speak to us in it and how you give us everything necessary to know about you and what you've done um, and what we are to do now, Lord, in response. Um, I do pray that you would teach us this morning, um, that you would read, um, that you would please help Matt as he preaches from your word, Lord, um, help him to speak faithfully and please help us to hear, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to say and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. This is God's word. Good morning, everyone. Hey, um, it's good to be here this morning. My name's Matt, one of the pastors here at CPE. Uh, as Iggy mentioned, we're going to be uh, kicking off our series on Philippians starting next week, starting next week, and, and Philippians will cover uh, most of the term. Uh, but this morning, so we've got, really, it's a once-off sermon. Uh, now, there are parts, there are times where here on a Sunday morning, we might cover big chunks of the Bible. Uh, you know, we did that in our Acts series. We were preaching maybe a chapter, maybe even two, three, four chapters at a time sometimes. But, you know, sometimes it can be just as beneficial to go real micro and actually just pick a few verses and to really unpack what those few verses have to say. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. We've got uh, one of those little purple passages in the Bible from the book of Titus. Uh, and we're going to just really unpack those uh, four verses that we had read out earlier for us. And it's going to be a, a short little passage there um, just about godliness, about what does it mean to grow in godliness. I mean, how many of us would say, hey, you know, I wish that I was more patient, uh, more loving, more in control of my own behaviors, uh, less proud. You know that God wants you to be more godly. You know that God has uh, standards as a holy God of what he might expect of you and of your life. And yet that process seems so hard. You know, sometimes it seems like you're taking a step forward followed by a step back. Uh, there are times when you're just uh, grieving over your own inability to, to be in control of, your, of yourself. Uh, there's times where you just feel like you're falling back into old habits. Sinful habits are so hard to dislodge. Now, I think it's an interesting uh, space because, you know, I think the world actually has a lot to say about this as well, doesn't it? I mean, maybe in your discussion about rewards and punishment, uh, it took you to places, yeah, whether it was a uni, your workplace, uh, maybe it's your upbringing. 
I mean, rewards and punishment is kind of like the most basic uh, form of motivation that we sort of see in our world. Uh, rewards for good behavior, uh, punishment for bad. Uh, you might hear this uh, known as the, the rod and the carrot when it comes to motivating people. Do you, do you try and scare people by fear with the rod or do you try and lead them on with the carrot? Uh, and I don't know about you, but uh, in my conversation I had, uh, we definitely were going, oh, the carrot is a much nicer way to uh, be motivated uh, because, hey, you know, offer someone money, food, dessert, uh, screen time, uh, star charts, uh, you know, whatever kind of system you might have had growing up, whatever system maybe you run in your family, chances are rewards are a part of that. But then what about the stick? I mean, punishments kind of work too, don't they? I mean, especially if you need a really quick response, uh, just threaten some kind of punishment, uh, whatever that might be, uh, fines, timeout, uh, physical punishment, you know, whatever it might be, that kind of does motivate too, doesn't it? But as many parents know, and uh, maybe as a parent you're feeling like this coming to the end of the school holidays, rewards and punishment only get you so far. It's quite limited, really, in how far it gets. It might kind of deal with kind of a, 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 an immediate instance, and you know that there's a lever you can pull. You just offer a little bribe, or you threaten a little punishment, and that might get you kind of a part of the way there. But as every parent finds out eventually, that only goes so far. In fact, what's much, uh, much, much more telling is to try and ask, well, what's actually going on the deeper level of in our hearts, or in our kids' hearts? or uh, in our workplaces. Because actually, there's much more going on than just kind of uh, wanting to get good things or wanting to avoid bad things. In fact, there's so much more that's going on for, for every human heart when it comes to how we act, how we think, how we behave. In fact, uh, those who've worked in the corporate world, you might hear this talked about in terms of extrinsic rewards and intrinsic rewards. Right, some people, uh, you know, some systems, some workplaces, all about kind of, you know, promotions, climbing ladder, getting good stuff. Uh, but other ones, are, a lot of studies have been done that actually the intrinsic rewards, the things that you do because, well, you think that they're good and you're motivated to do them, well, that's where the real value is, when someone is intrinsically motivated. So, friends, it's difficult to train the attitudes and behaviours of any human being, and it's the sort of stuff that, uh, that parents and, uh, and corporations and governments uh, would all love to know the secret to, to be able to train a human being. And as Christians, I think we know that actually we want to grow. We want to be trained. We want to actually uh, be motivated and live in a way that honours God. But the sad truth is that even a lot of Christians might kind of go, and a lot of people think that Christianity is, is ultimately do good things to go to heaven or avoid bad things so you don't go to hell. But I want to say this morning that that's actually not the Christian life. That's moralism. That's moralism, right? Moralism, do good things to get good things, do bad things and get bad things. But friends, moralism doesn't save you. Moralism tends to turn you into a harsh and judgmental, patronising kind of person. Uh, you find you're driven, you're driven yourself or drive others by guilt and shame and fear. 
Uh, it all leads to cover-ups, covering up our sin, because well, facing our failures seems so much harder. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to spend some time looking at these four verses from the book of Titus, because it really gives us the heart and the crux of what is it that drives the Christian life. It's a really short passage, but it's so packed to the brim with good you know, theological truth and practical help for our lives that uh, it's really worth uh, really unpacking this slowly. So if you've got that uh, part of the Bible open, keep that open. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Now, the quick background to the letters that uh, Titus, uh, he's one of the guys that Paul sent to go around and help to establish new churches. You know, all of last time we looked at Acts and how Paul travelled around, he started planting churches in all these towns, and after all those churches got established, he started to appoint elders to, to look after those churches, and pastors and things to grow those churches. And in this passage today, Paul outlines uh, the kinds of qualities and virtues that men and women, the young, old, wise, husbands, parents, what are the kinds of things that, uh, that, the, that the people of God should display as followers of Jesus? But here's the thing. Paul says the secret to godliness, it's not a secret at all. In fact, if you're a Christian, you've already experienced something of the secret to godliness. And the answer, he says, the answer is grace. The answer is grace. Grace is this thing that trains us to live godly lives. So let's have a look at it. Here's the passage up there. I'll just highlight different sections as we go through. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. So we're actually just going to stop there and just kind of put, pick apart that little phrase there. The grace of God appears bringing salvation for all people. Now, uh, if you think about it, it's sort of a weird phrase in the way that in, what, in which um, you talk about the grace of God. The grace is a characteristic of God. It's an attribute of God, right? Uh, it's something abstract like love or hate or patience. Uh, grace, it simply means undeserved favour. Right? It's something that describes our God. He is generous. He gives good things to those who don't deserve it. So how is it that, that grace can appear? That grace appears? Well, it's sort of like the way in which you know, I might say to my wife, well, I love my wife. But if I never actually do something, if I never appear and, and, and come and, and actually put that into action as a loving husband, well, I'm not sure I can fully back that claim. And so what you've got to ask yourself, well, where is it that you see God's graciousness uh, most concretely? And you see that, of course, in Jesus, that God has made his grace to appear for all people. And then when Jesus comes as the manifestation of God's grace, he comes offering salvation for all people. Now, this might be kind of an obvious starting point. And again, if you're a Christian, you kind of understand something of that. You know, we're saved not because of our good works, but because uh, God poured his grace out to us by sending his son to die for us. And yet, this is a really unique and important starting point. You know, every other religion, every other philosophy in the world, there's none that starts with this concept of grace. 
You see, the Isles start down this kind of really moralistic route that, uh, you know, you do things to avoid punishment, you do things to avoid uh, karma, uh, to avoid, you know, being reincarnated as something that you'd rather not be. Uh, or, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, in our modern day talk, we might kind of talk about this sort of self-soothing therapy kind of talk, you know. Oh, you're so special. You know, you're perfect. You're worth it. You just go and you do you and everything will be okay. And so in a sort of funny way, it sort of glosses over the fact that maybe you have faults and maybe you've done things wrong, but if you can just soothe yourself and be affirming of yourself enough, that, that that'll, that'll really be the thing that will grow and motivate you. But friends, the, the, the Christian has a much more unique way of growing and developing and, and motivating. You see, grace doesn't deny your failures, your sin, the dark side of who you are. See, grace is all about the fact that God acknowledges your sin, acknowledges, yes, there are good, good parts to you and bad parts to you, but God accepts you on the basis that Jesus pays for our sins. And that's actually really powerful because, uh, because actually it doesn't leave you wallowing in guilt and shame in the way that kind of moralism tends to just drive that into you because God has saved you from that. You see, Paul explains that a little bit more in verse 14. He says, well, he, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. See, it means that you don't need to hide your sin. You don't need to not deny your sin. You don't need to be um, afraid of guilt or punishment or shame, because we know that we are saved by grace. Now again, you know, I know I'm laboring this point, and this is probably something so fundamental to you if you've been Christian for a long time, but actually I think we have too small a view of grace. We don't recognize how revolutionary it is, that actually our total sense of worth and dignity can be based on the fact that God gives us his we don't have to earn it. We don't have to kind of gloss over our failures. But actually, God, by saving us, actually helps us to confront sin, to deal with it, and to actually help us make progress. You see, the grace that saves us is also the grace that trains us, continues to grow us. So we're going to start with this question. What is it that grace is training us to do? Well, that's the next verse, verse 12. It, grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, most of us here are probably reading the NIV translation of the Bible. Now, that little word there for uh, the way that grace teaches us is actually far too weak a word. It's far too weak a word. Um, if you've got an ESV or some other translations actually use the word grace trains us. Right? And I actually like that a bit better because it's, it's more, a much more active kind of thing, right? It's not like it's just a teacher that kind of teaches you some content that you can just kind of absorb and, and it'll change your life. No, no, Grace is actually continually there training us, right? You think of your sports trainer, your coach, or someone who's there constantly kind of working, helping you, encouraging you, giving, that, giving you uh, all the, the tools that you need to continue growing. That's the kind of picture that we have here. Grace is our trainer. It involves work, practice, discipline, 
You know, that's the lovely thing about the song we sung earlier. It's about the practice of being godly. Yeah? This is something you actually got to work on. And grace is going to be your partner all the way along. You see, a lot of us just want to kind of sit back and assume, oh, God's going to do a work in me. He's going to be the Spirit. I, I can just sort of sit back and in time, I'll grow. No, no, no. Actually, Peter Robert is saying, well, hey, actually, you continue to work and to strive. Not out of a fear of punishment, not out of wanting to do good, uh, to get rewards, but actually because grace is there motivating you, training you. Now, we're going to continue to see how that works out as we go. But what is it that grace is training us to do? Well, grace trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Right? Ungodliness, worldly passions, that's what we are naturally. Um, it's what we are without God's intervention in our lives. And when we don't have God at the center of our lives, uh, you know, when God is not at the center of our lives, well, often we put ourselves at the center of our lives and, and our desires are, are allowed to run free, our pride, our lust, our hate, gossip, lies. You just do whatever you like. It wouldn't be pretty. But grace trains us to abandon that, to leave that, to abandon hatred, envy, gossip, slander. Grace trains us to relinquish living for worldly pleasures. But it doesn't stop there. See, not only does grace train us to say no, it actually also trains us to say yes to a self-controlled, upright and godly life. Trains us to turn away from ungodliness and to godliness. See, instead of denying who God is, we actually, well, we want to live to please him, do what pleases him, mercy, compassion, love. So you don't just remove one type of action, you actually replace it with a whole new way of living. You know, it's actually really interesting that uh, for those who are involved in addiction rehabilitation, one of the big things that we've learned from all the research and all the work that's been done in that space is that addicts can't simply stop doing the thing that they're addicted to, drugs, sex, whatever it is that someone might be addicted to. Actually, what they found is that um, all addicts need to replace that action, that behavior, with something else. So it's not as simply as just kind of quitting smoking or quitting whatever it is that you're addicted to. You actually need to replace that with something new. And often they find themselves finding uh, new things, new pursuits for people to be involved in, healthier pursuits, whether it's exercise or a new hobby. Uh, whether it's a new pursuit, a new uh, work, something that's uh, a rewarding kind of work. So you actually kind of need something to replace that thing that had become such an idol that you became addicted to it. And that's the kind of thing that I think uh, God is encouraging us to do. You know, this isn't just about saying no to one type of life, but actually then putting all that time and that energy and that effort into a new kind of life into a new kind of life that will replace the old kind of way that was all about pleasing ourselves and to one that's all about pleasing God. Because I think the truth is everyone lives to please someone. The only question is one. So you start turning around, you stop, uh, you know, you, you stop being selfish, you stop lusting, you stop being greedy and you put on the new life. One in which you serve others at your own expense, where you don't treat others, members of the opposite sex for your own gratification, but you learn to treat them as people made in the image of God, to love them, to get to know them. 
But then there's that little phrase there, that little word there. It's in the present age. The present age. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Well, the present age that Paul's talking about is the fact that the whole world is really on about trying to train us in another direction. It's pushing against the kind of life that God wants you to live and pushing it into a much more self-indulgent life. I mean, I don't need to tell you that uh, for you to know that that's true. You know, the world is all about training its inhabitants to live lives of lust and addiction and, and, of, and, 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 and the world is constantly inviting, uh, inventing new ways to sin. I mean, you know, people used to steal things. Now they scam people on a mass basis. You know, there are websites that are designed to try and help you hook up with someone. There's a button. All you've got to do is a few clicks of a button to have something delivered to your door. You can waste your whole life in various forms of entertainment and streaming and gaming and gambling. See, our world lives for the present age. It lives for what it can get its hands on. It lives for what it can feel right now. Because there's no tomorrow. There's nothing else that it has to live for. But friends, the Christian lives in this age, but it doesn't live for this age. The Christian lives in this age, but it doesn't live for this age. And so that's what Paul kind of goes on then to say that actually, no, no, you're a Christian, you've got so much more to live for. This 50, 60, 80 years that you have on earth, whatever it is, that is not it. You have an eternity that is to come. He says, what, is the, what are we living for? Well, we're living while we wait for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, just as Jesus appeared once as a man to die on a cross, so he's going to appear again. He's going to appear as our great God and Savior. He's going to come in all of his glory to take us home one day. And so we know the times that we live in. We know that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to judge the living and the dead. And now is not the time to be just living for this paltry few years that we have on this planet, but actually we're living for the time in which Jesus is going to return and to take us to be with him forever. For eternity. And so he says, if, says, if you know the times that you're living in, you know how to live. We are waiting. We are training. We are getting ready in preparation for eternity with Christ. Now, I really love the game of cricket. Okay, I'm not sure how many other people out there are real lovers of cricket these days, um, particularly because, you know, some of the games uh, go for five days and they still end up in a draw. Yeah, I know, cricket can be a bit like that. Uh, but what I love about cricket, um, and I'm sorry, I couldn't actually think of any other sport that kind of does this as well, uh, but one of the best th the things about cricket is that cricket goes through all these phases, right? And you've got to know which phase of the game that you're in to know how you're supposed to be playing. See, often at the very start of a test match, uh, when the, the, the game's just opening up, uh, usually the ball's swinging all over the place, and you have these two guys batting called the openers. Now, their goal at that point is not to score as many runs as they can, it's just to survive. 
right? The goal is just to survive for those first few hours in the day. And then as, as the day warms up and the pitch dries out, then you can start going on the attack and starting to score some runs. And then there's other times in the match where maybe you are just defending because, well, maybe you are just playing for that draw now because your team can no longer win the match. And so you just spend hours and hours just kind of defending and blocking the ball and, 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 and that's really interesting, okay, for us tr- cricket tragics, all right? And we find that really, really interesting. You see, in order to know how you're supposed to be playing, you've got to know the kind of times. Where's this match at? There's no point coming in trying to blast as many runs as you can and then to get out cheaply when actually the team really needed you to stay in there and hang in there as long as possible. But so it is with us. So it is with us. You need to know the kind of age that you live in. And the kind of age that we're living in is not the age of just kind of trying to satisfy and gratify our own desires. We're not drawn to the same pleasure-seeking or materialism that our world is obsessed with. My friends, you're waiting. You're preparing for Jesus' return. And when he returns, how will he find you? Will your life be just characterized by chasing clothes and cars, condos? Will you be enslaved to your own worldly passions? Or will he find you fighting hard, training hard to live godly, upright, self-controlled kind of life. See, that's how we should live while we wait. Because the master of the wedding feast will come and he says that he will, how he finds you will be a big determinant of the kind of life that you're living. And if the kind of life you're living is one that you're trusting Jesus and following Jesus, that means training and being ready for when he returns. Friends, that's what he's training. That's why, that's part of why we're, we're to live the kind of life that we're supposed to live. But Paul goes on and actually gives us a little bit more motivation. A little bit more motivation. Because what does he say about that Jesus? Where he says, he was the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. Now, that little word redeem is is the idea of having a payment made for your freedom, right? It's usually the the payment made that uh, frees slaves, for example, uh, from their slavery. Uh, The Christian idea is the redemption that that actually it's that payment that actually pays for the, the, the penalty of sin that is due us and for our lives. And so you see that Jesus has given of himself to actually redeem us, to free us from our wickedness, to free us from the penalty of our sin. How can you possibly go back to the thing from which you were saved? You know, I remember when, back when I was working as a doctor that uh, one of the interesting things that you would see a lot in medicine is uh, you see people who come in to get various treatments for things. Um, you know, just imagine, put yourself in the, in the shoes of a patient who's just been diagnosed with lung cancer, Right? And the doctor tells you, well, hey, it's still small. We've got a chance to catch this. We're going to get in there. We're going to cut that thing out. We're going to resect that cancer. So you go into surgery and you uh, have the surgery. uh, You have that cut out. uh, You go through the chemotherapy and the radiotherapy that you need. uh, And and at great expense, both to yourself and your own health, your family, but also to the public health system. You get to the end of that process. 
And the surgeon says, you're now free of cancer. You're spotless, you're clean. I think we got there early enough. We have cleared you of cancer. And your doctor comes back then to ask you, so you're going to continue smoking? See what a kick in the teeth that would be to kind of go and return back to the life that got you into this hole in the first place. Now, yes, smoking actually is very addictive and it's hard to quit and it's going to be a long process and it might take you some time to do that. But I reckon you have all the motivation you need to be able to do that, wouldn't you? You can't return back to the thing from which you were saved, especially having gone through all that you've been through, especially having been given a new lease of life on a cancer that is otherwise absolutely deadly. And that's the way it is with the Christian life. See, grace has saved us from our wickedness, redeemed us, given us that new life. What else has it done? Well, Jesus gave himself to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. See, having shown us our sin, having saved us and redeemed us from our sin, Jesus gives us a new purpose to live for. You are redeemed, you are bought with Jesus' blood. You, You no longer belong to you, you belong to Jesus. And he has purposed you for a new thing in mind. He's given a new thing to live for, and he's given you a new training program with a new trainer, and that trainer is grace. You know, I kind of think of God as like this master craftsman. He's kind of taken just a pile of junk and leftover bits and pieces, but he's put those pieces together, and he's crafted something that is a beautiful, that is a work of art, that's meant to display his own goodness and his grace to you by showing you how much your life has changed. Now, the gospel and the, and, and the New Testament never says that you're going to be perfect. You're always a work in progress. But with grace training and doing that work in you, doing it from a deep level about who you are, what you're living for, who you're living to please, that actually as that work happens, that new life's going to look different. And it's going to look amazing and beautiful because that's the work that God is doing in you. Now, church, can you see how different that is to moralism? Can you see how much more powerful that is than, than just rewards and punishment and, and, and trying to you know, get to heaven or to avoid hell? Jesus is actually saying, hey, I saved you, I redeemed you. I have made you new, and I am producing something that is incredible and beautiful in you and through you, that will not just bless you, but even bless those around you. Actually, if you go back and read the whole chapter of Titus, it's all about, it is all about parents and husbands and wives, about young people and old people, about what it means when God has done that work in your life, that that godliness would flow out from you to the people around you, that you would bless those around you, that you won't be someone who takes from others, who frustrates others, who makes others, uh, who stirs uh, problems and issues up in your relationships, but actually seeks to solve them, to grow them, to love people, to serve others. 
And that over time, you'll see that effect. It's, it's say, you're never going to be perfect at this. We've all got our sin. We've all got our uh, things that we've got to work on. But when that grace is doing its work, its deep work in us and through us, it will produce a life that looks radically different to what came before. You see, friends, the Christian life is one of grace-centeredness, of Christ-centeredness. Grace isn't moralism. Jesus is the one, he actually takes the rod for us. He has taken that punishment for us, and he has given us all that is his. And that's going to do that work in us down to the deep level of who we are, what we live for, who we're seeking to please. That grace should turn us from, from, from fear and guilt and shame from driving us and living out of the, the thankfulness, living out of the grace that has done that deep work in us. See, friends, the grace that saves us is the, is the thing that continues to work in us and through us. I'll come to this slide in a second. You know, I think one thing that some of the, uh, the self-development gurus do get right is, is they do talk about the things that you really focus on, right? The things that really, uh, you know, uh, Anthony Robbins, you know, one of those uh, guru-type guys, he says, hey, that which you focus on becomes the key to your reality, right? That which you focus on becomes the key to your reality. So I want to ask you, what is the key to your reality? What's the kind of picture and the shape of, what's the little inner voice that you have inside of your head as you go about doing your life, as you make mistakes, as you sin, as you, as you work uh, to kind of grow in your life, in your Christian maturity? Is it a grace-shaped reality? Is that something that just dominates your life and your view of everything? Is Jesus just so central to that, the thing that you love, that you take joy in? that it continues to grow and shape all of who you are. See, I think many of us, we kind of do have a little bit of that grace thing, but we've also got the other side of us. That is, you know, maybe the, the predominant voice in your head is the really harsh critic that's always uh, making us feel guilty and ashamed of our mistakes and all the things that we have done. Uh, when you only feel really accepted or worthy because, of, because you've done right or, or because you've been able to please people in your life. Or maybe the little voice in your head is that kind of self-centered uh, narcissist or that soothing therapist that keeps telling you, oh, you know, just do what feels good for you because you're, you're perfect, you're fine how you are. Or friends, is it the voice of God that's speaking to you, that's saying, I redeemed you, I have saved you. I have paid for your sin. You have no more need to feel guilty or ashamed because of what I have done. And I am making you new to be what I want you to be. See, friends, if that voice is there reminding you that Jesus has freed you, he has given a new purpose and a bright future, well, friends, you have everything that you need to grow in your godliness. See, friends, in these short verses, uh, we've seen the way that grace works and changes and shapes us in our lives. So I want to ask, is that your reality? Is that the message that is so uh, part of your being in your bones that continues to drive you? 
Is this stuff that you, is there stuff in your life that you just need to refocus because you're just distracted by the world and all the things of this present age kind of keep drawing you away from being able to spend time with God and to be able to uh, rejoice in the grace that He has shown you? Is there things that you can do to kind of bring that to memory? To stick it up on your monitor, on your dashboard, the kind of thing that just keeps it front and center for you in your life. See, maybe God is putting his finger on some part of your life that you know you need to change. But where are you going to go to for the resources for that? It's not going to be out of guilt, shame, going to come out of grace isn't it so i want to did want to finish you with you for uh with a, a great little quote from a, a guy called john newton a guy called john newton he wrote the hymn amazing grace uh so uh you know he knows a thing or two about grace and it's a great little quote that just talks about the reality of life uh, that's not quite where we'd like to be but a life that is lived and shaped by grace he says this he says i am not what i ought to be Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I'm not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil and I would cleave to what is good. I'm not what I hope to be. Soon, soon shall I put off mortality and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say that I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan, and I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Hey, church, wouldn't I pray for us that that grace would be the thing that's working deeply in our lives now? Let's pray. Father God, we do want to thank you for these comforting words here in Titus. Lord, we are comforted by your grace and your redemption that you have poured out to us in Christ. Lord, without him, we are lost. We are given over to just living for uh, our daily and, and worldly pleasures. But Father, you did not leave us there. You sent your son to die for us, to redeem us. But then also to change us, to shape us, to give us new things to live for, to replace the old life with the new. And Father, for all of us, for those areas in which in our lives in which we know that we are falling short of what it means to follow you. Lord, we pray that we might continue to apply grace to that, that we would stop beating ourselves up in guilt and shame, but turn to the cross, running to you as our loving Father, and then working alongside, being trained by the grace that you have given us to put on the new life. We pray that we might do that in a way that honours you and honours the one that you sent to die for us. Amen. All right, well, hey, church, I reckon now would be a great time to do a bit of your own personal reflection on your own life about the place that grace plays for you. And if there's particular areas of your life that you need to work on and pray about, you can do that now. And if, of course, there's stuff that's come up for you, come and chat to me or one of the other pastors here. We'd love to help continue uh, helping you work through grace and see that working out uh, in every part of your life. Let me spend a bit of time. Bless you.